You are listening to the Post Woke Podcast with Chelsea Jackson. 1209. The show about what people do after they wake up. As a political scientist, hippie, and activist, I've developed a lot of questions over the years about how to embed social justice into my everyday life. So I wanted to share my conversations with other post-woke human beings. And no, I don't mean those hyper-woke, the ultra-woke, uber-woke, the woke-karate, the wokers, the woke folks, the woke-topians. Being post-woke is just like being someone who just woke up from a long nap, aware, annoyed, and activated. Aware of social issues like racism and the climate crisis, annoyed at the systems that keep them in place and activate it to do something about it, creating a different future. So if that's you, regardless of what you have, where you are, what you look like, you're in the right place. Listening to the Post-Woke Podcast with Chelsea Jackson. Today, we're going to talk about the charity sector, burnout, and new visions for addressing violence with, with Evie Muir. Evie is a domestic abuse survivor and qualified domestic abuse specialist, writer, and the founder of Peaks of Color, a Peak District-baked Nature for Healing community group by and for people of color. Working in the violence against women and girls sector for over 10 years, Evie specialized in Black and queer survivors' intersectional experience of gendered and racialized trauma. Leaving the sector when she became burnt out, disenfranchised, and disillusioned, her work now sits in the intersections of gendered, racial, and land justice and seeks to nurture survivors' joy, rest, hope, and imagination. Advocating for the decolonization of the outdoors, Evie is interested in the ways nature can forge a landscape of healing and justice outside of carceral feminism. Her debut book, Radical Rest, will be published by Elliot and Thompson in 2024. And welcome back to another episode of the Post Book Podcast. I'm so excited to be here with Evie. Hey. And, um, actually met Evie up in Sheffield through Cradle Community. Went up there to do an event. And Evie was there, uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, had so many great ideas, was so energetic and like positive and just really brought a vibe. And I'm thrilled to have you on the podcast. So thanks so much for joining Thanks so much for having me. I mean, Cradle Community and your book has provided so much inspo for the work I do. So yeah, I'm fangirling. <laughs> and thanks so much for the shameless plug for the book. We're just gonna uh, show that <laughs> for anyone who's listening, the name of our book is Brick by Brick, How We Build a World Without Prisons. And you can check that out with Hajar Press. We actually have a third edition coming out um, in a few months. So um, we're really excited for our next reprint. And with that, I have just read your bio and put it down in the show notes. But I'm really curious, Evie, for our first question of the show, what was your awakening moment? When did you wake up? When did you realize, you know what, the way things are going, it's not going to work and we really going to have to change things for the future? Mm. Okay, good question. And you know, I feel like there could be a lot of points or moments I point to um, that represent like a gradual awakening, but actually my real honest answer would be 2021 which seems weird because it's so recent and I've been doing this work since I was what 16 17 and yet it's taken me 
that long to feel like, I don't know, feel like I get it, feel like I know my purpose within the movement, um, to feel safe within the movement. Um, and that was really at the point where I left the violence against women and girls sector um, in the UK. So I'd worked in the sector for 10 years. Um, in fact, maybe, yeah, just over a decade really, um, since being 18 and kind of entered the sector um, through a university placement and then stayed on at that organization and was working in uh, a refuge up in Newcastle and then never left and just moved around the sector. Um, eventually finding my feet in uh, development and training work and specialized in the support and advocacy for black and queer survivors um, who are disproportionately impacted by domestic abuse and gendered violence um, and who disproportionately don't get the support and have no access to healing or justice within this carceral model that the Vogue sector sits in. So I've been doing that for 10 years and was gradually and gradually becoming so uh, burnt out, disenfranchised, uh, disenchanted. Um, yeah, like I think I hadn't felt hope or optimism or felt like the work mattered in any way since walking in as a student, bushy eyed and no, bright eyed and bushy tailed, not bushy eyed. Um, like I, that, had, that had been, that light had been snuff so quickly because the sector is so depressing in so many ways you know I'm also a domestic abuse survivor so I'm working in and amongst my own trauma day to day from the hours of nine to five plus overtime plus out of hours work um with absolutely no support um I didn't access therapy through work until 2020 um so I'd had what eight or nine years without uh, without support from my employers, um, working in the trauma, working in systems that are white-led, that have no idea about um, the legacies of colonialism that the charity sector uphold, and that hire people like me as their uh, yeah their brown mascot essentially doing the diversity and inclusion work. Um, that is all very well and good whilst you're doing it. You might feel like you're making a bit of progress, but then you realize that that progress is only linked to you, essentially. That when you leave, and you will leave because all the contracts are one to two year fixed term contracts, that when you leave and when the funding goes, um, that work dies with you. Um, and you know, I'm, I moved, I've upped about between uh, mainstream white led organizations and then BAME, so to speak. Uh, domestic abuse organisations and let me tell you they were the most traumatising out of the lot um, and I was done I was so done and there was a point I think in November of 2021 where um, we'd just come, come off the back of uh, like two months of hell essentially I was working at an LGBT domestic abuse organisation where it was part of a wider uh, LGBT youth organisation and in my team there was just me and another person um, and we were responsible for the uh, the LGBT domestic abuse um, development of the whole of South Yorkshire so Sheffield, Doncaster, Rotherham, Barnsley um, 
working with every organization that would engage with us to support their uh, LGBT inclusion and anti-racism journey, essentially. And that funding uh, came to an end, was coming to an end. Um, A couple of months before that, in September, we'd hosted a series of really great events that got hijacked by a load of TERFs. Um, Or I'm trying to use the term um, fascist feminist more because I feel like TERFs is so dismissive nowadays. Wow, I like it. Fascist feminist, feminist. yeah. Fascist feminist. So yeah, it was hijacked. We had uh, trans women of colour on our panels and they infiltrated the event and it caused weeks of just pain and... um, So that happened in September and then we quickly found out uh, a few weeks after that that the funding for our project was running out and that would mean that I was being made redundant for the second time in two years. Nothing to do with the pandemic, all because of how the charity funds its work, the charity sector funds its work. Um, And then there was a lifeline. We were told that, oh, we can give you three months more funding, but only if you work with an organisation whose CEO is a fascist feminist, whose CEO only months before tried to get me fired, doxed me, tried to get me fired for tweeting about my trans allyship. So I had, and and this this three month project was to develop, research, develop, pilot, and then deliver the very first um, uh, queer survivor peer support group in Sheffield and we were meant to do that in three months whilst leaving a job finding further employment off the back of all of this trauma within the work and ironically this role was the best role I've ever had it was the safest organization I've ever worked in and this is the last six months of it so I was I really hit a low of uh, burnout depression and realized at that point that when I burn out it's so linked to the work I do in the sense of um, I, f- I end up finding the work pointless and seeing no room for hope within it of like there is nothing I can do there's nothing we can do to create change why am I killing myself for these roles um, and we're all fucked basically um, so it wasn't so then I, I the role ended I left in December and I had a uh, a month in January, which is all I could afford of not working, um, and then started a new role uh, in February. And it was really interesting that with within that month of January, um, not much changed in terms of the physical and mental effects of burnout, but I had this light bulb moment, this awakening of, oh, I get what abolition is now. Because whilst I was in the violence against women and girls sector, you know, I'd read articles about abolition. I'd, I'd be surrounded by it uh, outside of the work, and I was so, um, uh, yeah, I was frustrated by it. I, I was like, it's impossible. It's like this fairy tale, and um, it's all very well and good. People who aren't doing the work on the ground saying this is what we should be doing but we're here in the trenches doing this frontline work and it's like what you're advocating for is impossible. It like, it's impossible. And then left the Vogue sector and it was so bizarre how just the space from it gave me this like opportunity to 
to think for myself essentially and I think it really speaks to how the violence against women and girls sector it isn't it isn't advocating for the eradication of gendered violence anymore because if it was abolition would be possible but it doesn't want to abolish gendered violence because it's so many people benefit from it all these white women in CEO positions who yes may have their own trauma but are now using that trauma to harm others and that power to harm others they are benefiting from the way that gendered violence continues you know the whole point should be that the Vogue sector doesn't exist eventually um but how the charity sector works is that it will always exist um and it's so embedded with systems of policing and you know the only routes to healing and justice for a survivor in this carceral model is to go through the criminal justice sector or go through psychiatric support um and we know that for black queer survivors neither of them have very positive outcomes right um yeah and it was so it was at that point that i was like oh this is what abolitionism is about hope and imagination and there's no room for hope and imagination in in the Vogue sector. And I think at that point when I'd, so, you know, I was burnt out, I'd been made redundant and I was like, I need a break from it before I return. And there was a point in that month where the light bulb moment came on of like, oh, I can never return. It simply doesn't align with my values anymore. Mm. Um, so even though, you know, I'd been doing this work since I was 16 and there was a lot you know, there's a lot I could point to of like, I don't know, the first time I experienced abuse or the first time, you know, I realized I was brown at three or whatever. It wasn't until the point that I found abolition and got it and knew I had a place in it and knew uh, I could do something within it uh, that I felt like I was truly awake. That was wow. No, that's fantastic. And I'm so happy that you shared it. Thank you so much. There was so much there that that mirrors uh, my own experience, particularly when you said getting to a point of depression, burnout, and disillusionment, and just being like, why am I killing myself? Why am I running myself into the ground to try and end these systems that have already been here for hundreds of years. Like, am I really thinking that with my little ego that, you know, this work that I'm doing is going to transform this. Mm -hmm. And um, I love what you said as well about there's this individual view of progress within the charity sector and what a lot of people will call the nonprofit industrial complex. And the reality of that is that there's no institutional memory because things are not systemic. Um, and they're not designed to be systemic. They're designed to be kind of one-off uh, service yes. user, you know, kind of relationships, mm -hmm. uh, very transactional uh, relationships, very, you know. Um, and the last thing, the last two things that you said that I really want to bring back up, like when you said around depression, burnout, and disillusionment. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, yeah, I was doing this work that outwardly people would be like, oh, you're such a justice advocate. You're trying mm -hmm. to change the world the world better you work in the charity sector right but in your heart of hearts doing this work every day you actually don't feel like you're winning you actually no. don't feel like you're making a dent or making an yeah. impact and the beautiful way that you described it as you know the charity sector the violence against women and girls sector at least doesn't have a real desire to eradicate gender violence it's not doing and it i was on a panel in edinburgh i think two years ago and the yeah. young lady said that 
uh, gender violence is not, our society doesn't oppose violence. It just wants to regulate violence. So yeah. it just wants to control who can be violent against who and in what circumstances violence is permitted. Exactly. But it doesn't actually want to eliminate or eradicate violence from our society. And the way you said it in terms of, I had to step away from this sector to have space enough to even be able to imagine a world in which violence wasn't inherently already there. And it's almost like being in the sector was like, okay, violence is going to happen. So what are we going to do about it? And it's like, you're just managing it. Space to say, wait, 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 hold on. Violence doesn't have to happen. Like maybe we could disrupt that. And especially when you're in a sector that is itself violent, you know, the violence against women and girls sector is just uh, one example of the wider, like you said, the charity industrial complex, like the whole sector is broken to its core and the Vogue sector is no different within that. But the violence that we experience as um, black and queer workers within it, it perpetuates this myth that, that violence is inevitable essentially and like I there was a point I can't remember there was a point in like the past 10 years that I started saying it's not the uh, trauma from my abusers that keeps me up at night anymore it's the trauma from the job it's the trauma from the sector and you know I've had two I've had two uh, abusers in my life and still now even afterwards it's the it's the it's the workplace trauma from the violence against women and girls sector perpetrated by white middle-aged middle-class women in power powerful positions that I'm still doing like I haven't talked about the domestic abuse trauma I've experienced in therapy for probably about six months to a year it's not that I don't need to but it's because the trauma from the work um is so prevalent still in day-to-day life um yeah and, and now that. No, thank you for sharing. I wanted to ask you in that month where mm-hmm. you where you had that space and you're like, all right, I only got one more month where I can afford <laughs> to not work, but let me take this month and get mm-hmm. some space. What are the types of things that you did in that month mm-hmm. to give yourself that space? Because like you said, and this is something I think people misunderstand. You can't run yourself into the ground for 10 years and then think one month is going to put you back to to default. So Mm -hmm. I love when you said, listen, I was still, excuse me, experiencing the physical and mental, you know, symptoms of burnout. But just because I had some room, I was able to think differently. Yeah. Were you, is that when you started walking, engaging with nature? Like, what was the point at which, like, how did you kind of break through that and say, wow, maybe we can imagine something different? Do you know what I I I don't know. It's not as it hasn't been as straightforward as like oh yeah I left my job I uh, went for a walk I had an epiphany bish bash bosh like it's not how it happened and the my introduction to nature almost officially started when I was experiencing domestic abuse um, so that had been there under the surface you know as a constant for quite a few years um, and what actually happened in that month um was that the burnout you're right the burnout hasn't gone like it did it it took it's still taking so much longer than, than that one month and I remember um because you know I had to take another job for necessity it was outside of the Borg sector um but I just had to and I remember 
like the two or three days before starting that job I was a mess I was so I was crying uncontrollably and felt so sorry for myself like that's the only way I can describe it just this like abject self-pity because I knew that I was having to go back into work for necessity when I was too poorly to actually do that um and I mean, the more I understand about trauma, there's so much re- uh, burnout even, there's so much research that has existed for like, since the early noughties about the ways that burnout impacts the brain and it's the exact same way as trauma does. So, you know, if we're recognizing that someone who's experienced domestic abuse, for example, is going to be on a lifelong recovery from that trauma and then you add burnout to the mix, then, you know, how can you expect anyone to return to that place of work um, that choice it's no different to asking a domestic abuse survivor to return to their abuser and expecting them to be okay um, so yeah I, I can't pinpoint you know the date time where I even was when that thought came to me but it was something around uh, that recognition of like I can't return because it's no different to returning to an abuser essentially and I wouldn't advocate that for any of the other black queer survivors I'd support um, so why why should I let the system make me feel like I have to um yeah yeah that that is so powerful uh one I just want to say you are incredible uh thank you so much for sharing your story I'm you did not deserve whatever human beings violated your boundaries and but I'm so grateful for the powerful advocate and, and survivor that you are because the language that you're using is so empowering and if there's any survivors who are listening, just like you said, like that self-worth and self-value and understanding and analysis that you're taking from being a survivor, you're applying that to, like you said, this to- these toxic systems and yeah. saying, hey, if I wouldn't go back to someone who was harming me physically, emotionally, or verbally, why am I going back to the system that's exploiting me where I'm getting, you know, all of these types of trauma and harm. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing, like you said, that like, I think there's levels of compounded trauma that are really brushed under the rug. And I just want to say from the beginning, when you said you you worked in the sector for 10 years and you didn't get any therapy support until like year eight. That to me is so disturbing. And my partner, my partner was a mental health uh, nurse for almost 15 years. And when he told me about in the NHS uh, in the UK, and when he told me, like, yeah, we, we didn't get, like, mental health support. Like, we didn't get, like, therapy or, like, CBD or, you know, even, like, meditations. Like, not, like nothing. nothing. And I'm like, how do you guys do this for a living? And no one's responding to all mm-hmm. the trauma that's got to be compounded on what you're doing. So, for me, there's this catch-22 between when I talk to my friends who are in the charity sector, which is dominated by middle class Uh women like you said because those are the people who come from the economic and social privilege enough to work most of these Uh underpaid charities because they're the executives that are taking all the money and not being underpaid but all the program assistants who are queer black and brown and Mm -hmm. all right they're the ones who are getting paid twenty two thousand pounds to all right when i still it was 14 12 to 14 and yeah, and so when I ended up being on like, uh, yeah, 22, 23, uh, that was seen as like being paid loads, being like mental and you're doing all of that and literally not getting, the, I remember uh, this uh, BAME, Domestic Abuse Organization, BAME is what the sector calls the 
yeah, the, the non-white, the, like the bias minority ethnic for my American listeners. Yeah, don't know. Yes. but it's it's a catch-all term that's being that's being um, mm-hmm. re- rebuked. I don't advocate for it, but that's still what the sector calls us all. So yeah, when I worked in the the this BAME domestic abuse organization, um, that was heavily funded by the Home Office. Let me preface. Um, yeah, we there was a, a group of us that really like tried fighting for therapy for uh, the staff, and we were told in a meeting, and this just really speaks to the levels of like gaslighting and um, minimizing that we'd experienced from our managers. We were told by the CEO that we could have therapy, but um, the only way they could fund it is if they took it, took that money out of the pot for service users. So it would mean that we'd have to choose between ourselves and the people we were supporting. We'd have to place ourselves on this hierarchy of need, who needs it more, who is, you know, let's be honest, no one really goes into working in a sector like the Borg sector unless they've got lived experience of this problem. So you know for a fact that your entire body of staff are already coming in with their own trauma. They're witnessing trauma daily. And then you're saying, oh, but you're not as traumatized as the people who you're supporting. And they position you in this way of like, uh, people have it worse off than you, so you should sacrifice yourself for them. And um, so we were, we said, we would position this, uh, propose this. You can have it, but you, it would have to come out of the pot for them. So we obviously rejected that because even if we had accepted it, it would have only made more work for us in the long run if we were taking funding from them. And what they did in the end was they gave us like six months of group therapy where um, you were split into groups of like 20 to 30 and you each had one, uh, each group had one session every like two months. And that session was like two hours. It was meant to be mandatory, which is also bizarre. Um, And you'd go and there'd be this like therapist there and because it was only two hours and there was 30 of you, you, no one, you couldn't all speak. So it ended up being prioritized with who had had the be- the worst week of, of anyone in the room. So it would be like the person who had a, a person they were supporting who had taken their own life that week and they would get the opportunity to unfill this trauma in front of us all. We'd all still witness that. And then there was nothing no system in place where you know we'd be sharing the day-to-day lived realities of being in this job and there was no mechanism for it to be reported back to to the uh to the organization in a way that could actually help us so we had uh one to two hours every couple of months to cry and then we just have to return back to it um it's daft it's daft it's exploitative uh it's one of those things where when you say it out loud, you're like, I can't believe that, like, that happens. This, like, yeah, that it just, yeah. and it still exists, and it's still like this place. Uh, I've still got friends who work there. It still exists. It's only got worse. The institutionalized racism. You know, all the managers were white essentially, and all the staff were brown, and all the people we were supporting were brown, and it is. The, the mechanisms of this place still exist. I always say there should be a panorama about it because I've never known anything worse. And the fact that it is this, like, it's, it's yeah, it's put on this pedestal of, like, it's a BAME organisation, it's doing great, it is quite literally contributing to so much harm. Um, 
And that's just one example, essentially. It's never ending. Thank you. I, I want, just want to give a shout out to anyone who's listening, especially me, Gen Z, and young people listening. Listen, we all know the revolution needs to come. Every sector is messed up. So the charity sector is a hot ass mess. Uh-huh. I'm sorry to be the one to tell you that if you're planning to leave uni or, you know, if you're you're growing up right now and you're thinking, oh, I want to go work in the charity sector because I want to do good and I don't want to exploit people and I don't want, you know, to only care about money and finances. Well, that charity is going to care a lot about donors. Uh-huh. I worked at a charity um, in the States. Uh, that was around criminal justice reform, allegedly. <laughs> One of the company's uh, sponsors was um, Starbucks. <laughs> this was quite a few years ago, but there was a big controversy at the time around Starbucks. The the uh, workers were, the baristas were organizing. Shout out to uh, shout out to Starbucks and all the baristas organizing uh, and, and creating a union. Shout out to y'all uh, fighting for fighting for your workers' rights. But anyway, so Starbucks, there's a big controversy. No, sorry. This was the controversy a few years ago. I think it was in New York. Basically, a black man, two black men were sitting in a Starbucks. And the manager called the police on them because they hadn't bought anything. I don't know. She said they were loitering, whatever. She called the police. See how, like, unsurprised they I'm like, yep. <laughs> so this was, a, like, a huge controversy. Everybody's, like, starting starting to smoke and trauma. And because Starbucks was one of the main sponsors and donors of this charity that I worked at, the executive director came in one day and explicitly said, no one say anything about mm-hmm. what's going on at Starbucks. Don't tweet about it. Don't put it on Instagram. Don't like in your personal time, in your free space. Like we need to not make our donor look bad. And I'm like, are they making their self look bad? Like it's not us. It's making their self look bad. And you actually telling me that I can't talk about it is actually worse. Because uh-huh. if you hadn't said anything to me, I probably wouldn't have said nothing anyway. But now <laughs> that you're telling me I can't say anything because they're a donor, so I can't tweet about this. And so, so there are a lot of toxic dynamics there. But I want to circle back to one dynamic that you mentioned earlier that yeah. I really don't want to fall by the wayside. When you said this sector can't be committed to eradicating gendered violence because it relies on it Uh it relies on gender violence to continue to exist for them to get funding and this is for me where as much as um so i'm building an organization right now Uh and i went back and forth in my mind of like should i register as like a social enterprise should i register as a nonprofit? Uh should i register as a charity and those of me they always like no i'm not going to register it as a charity one same Uh at charity's house Meaning, uh, or in the states, you know, the body that regulates the 501c3s, because yes. that's also an entire political process. That's a very political process trying to get registered as a charity, mm-hmm. having to appoint a board of directors, the type of class politics as far as the people who are going to sit on the board of a charity, yeah. the dynamics as far as philanthropy, you know, um, that just all doesn't align. And when I understand, so, so I say all this to say that no organization is perfect. But yes. I just want to flag for everybody in the audience that there is this dynamic within the nonprofit world of, yeah, but if this problem gets solved, then we won't get any funding. Mm-hmm. And well, we won't continue like, to exist. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess like my light bulb moment sat on like the intersections of those two things. It was, um, you know, if you look at 
the sector through this abolitionist framework, it full it crumbles immediately because um, one, you know, the violence against women and girls sector is a really good example of this. But pick a sector, like it it, it will all apply. Um, it's so embedded in policing, uh, in systems of policing. Um, you know, as a um, as a uh, support worker, you're legally obliged to complete prevent training, which is how you can report uh, anyone who's like supposedly suspicious of terrorist activity. And these are the AKA people you're meant to be reporting. Exactly, AKA how you can profile Asian exactly. and, uh, and Muslim and Islamic people. Exactly. Um, that's really what prevent does in the UK. Well, precisely. And I mean, so, and even beyond that, even like at the very core, you know, statistics currently uh, estimate that only is it 1.3% of reported rape cases um, make it to court. Yep. Not even that they there's a result in prosecution. Exactly. So they make just, it to court. Just get there. 1.3%. So, you know, justice is, a, is barely being served to the white middle class survivors out there, cisgender and, and heterosexual survivors out there. Never mind if you're black and queer with insecure immigration status with a disability. Like, it's impossible. So it's embedded in this carceral system of policing that simply isn't working. Um, it's also fundamentally reliant on the charity industrial complex. Um, and as a, as a whole, it hasn't even begun to acknowledge its uh, the ways it's yeah furthering this legacy of colonialism. Like it just there's there's no there's no consciousness of that on the ground in the organisations. It doesn't matter what room you step into of like um, it's it's just not being talked about. They are so far removed from it that it's impossible. It's it's impossible. Like it's not it's not going to change. So the only route really is if you're going to abolish policing. If this is what we're advocating for, if you're abolishing policing, you have to abolish the Vogue sector because it doesn't stand without the other one. If you're abolishing policing, you've got to abolish the charity sector because it doesn't stand without the other one. Um, and then it leaves this like room for okay, well, what what happens instead of what it exists? Right. And I mean, like for peaks of color. Uh, which is the community group I I run, I face the exact same dilemma of, um, yeah, how do we exist? And I think because I was building peaks of colour from this place of trauma, all I knew was that it needed to be different. I didn't, I didn't know from the off what that difference looked like, but I immediately embraced this like positionality of experimentation, and that's what we've like held on to throughout like and and it's it's that reminder it's a constant reminder because peaks of color represents for me this complete unlearning keep deconditioning journey of um capitalism of the charity industrial complex of white supremacy of trying to build something that sits outside of it um and when and on the days where i get really tangled in these webs of like systems and policies and whatever I have to remind myself that we're experimenting so it's okay if we don't get it right and it's okay if we try something outside of a system that doesn't work but for us like we're still unconstituted we're not registered as a charity um we're not registered as a kick we are classed if if there was a form that we had to fill in we'd put unregistered community group um sometimes the forms don't even have that option and that's fine it's not for us um and we've made the decision 
uh, really early on that we were never going to take funding from white-led funders. Um, and we made the decision to uh, never partner with white-led organisations. There was a caveat of unless it felt safe, unless they could prove that they were truly with us in whatever we defined as, yeah, whatever that definition was to us at that given time or place. Um, if I could just pop a pin there, uh-huh. because I really want to emphasize the difference between self-determination and exclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw a great meme about this the other day on LinkedIn. And it was like, someone comes into a room and they're not welcome and they're excluded. Mm-hmm. So they go to a corner and they find like two or three other people who are also not welcome and excluded. So they say to each, to each other, you know, we're not really being included in this room. Do you guys want to like all three of us like leave together and mm-hmm. go do something together? So the other two people are like, yeah, sure. That's great. Cause like we're not being included here. Then the three people leave. Now everyone else in the room is so offended. Like, how dare you guys leave? Why aren't you including us? We're being excluded. And it's like, nah, fam. Mm -hmm. They are reacting to the fact that they have been excluded. And now they're creating a safe space for themselves. Because And I really want to emphasize that because there's a real difference between self-determination and excluding white orgs and I love what you said around there is an exception and the exception mm-hmm. is we feel really safe the exception mm-hmm. is allyship is a verb at your organization and not a title it means like, that you rock with us however we rocking and whatever direction we're rolling in you're rolling with us we're in the lead you, you know you're you're being supportive of what of the decisions that we're making and the way we want to approach things and that's what solidarity looks like that's what allyship looks like and so it's not you guys seeing like writing off all the people no no no. i'm not writing you off i'm just mm-hmm. saying if you're gonna come in here it's gonna be based on demonstrated solidarity exactly. not like oh yeah i stand with you guys it's like mm-hmm. no, 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 no. we don't have to see that and i really want to emphasize that for any other black leg um organizations or global majority led organizations like there's nothing wrong with you doing that there's no difference between a b corp saying hey we're only going to work with suppliers that align with our you know net zero committee yeah. it's about having clear mission value you know and objectives and saying i'm not going to get down with anybody just because they're writing a check and i think this is another thing that shot a lot of grassroots orgs in the foot yeah. Going through the process of registering, becoming these charities, becoming these nonprofits, and then getting co-opted by these larger funders and these or- other organizations that have either ulterior motives or are going to really constrain the kind of political analysis of, of where it's going. So yeah, exactly. I wanted to um, pivot back to something you said. Mm. Because, oh my gosh, I'm 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 gonna quote you. I'm gonna quote you. <laughs> when you said. I was building from a place of trauma. So I just took a positionality of experimentation and it was okay for us to iterate, for us to mess up, for us to try and for it to not be perfect because the only, basically the only prerequisite we had was it needs to be different. It needs to mm-hmm. feel different. Yeah. And that was the, and I wanted to actually read a, read a little bit from Brick by Brick because when you said, we want it to be different. I really want the audience to know, like, what is that different? What is that? Mm-hmm. So it's safety, agency, and healing for survivors. Listen, exactly. listen, the, most of the, most of the carceral families- We're asking families, for a lot of weight. 
<laughs> most of the carceral feminism, this comes from chapter um, Transformative Justice in Practice from, from the second half of the book where we're talking about the bricks we want to build, mm. right? But the reality of carceral feminism or what really drives a lot of the violence against women and girls, domestic violence sector is this idea that we need to lock up abusers um, and we need to punish abusers and we need to be tough on abusers and we need new legislation and laws against violence against women and we need to make misogyny a hate crime. These are the types of political ideas or policy measures that carceral feminists are pushing in terms of saying, this is good for feminism, this is good for women. The problem with that is though, this first bit, safety agency and healing for survivors. The truth is, we know that the, like you just said, 1.3% of rape cases actually go through. Domestic violence is, is abysmal. Um, so in terms of you go report domestic violence, police might come and detain that person for a few hours and then they're coming right back to your house mm -hmm. to be harassed for calling 999 on them. Mm -hmm. So the truth is that a lot of times the way the system is currently set up because our police are reactive, they're not designed to prevent violence from happening. They're there to re react to and respond to violence. So actually pushing this punitive narrative doesn't do anything to increase the safety agency or healing for survivors. It's only focused on punishing perpetrators mm -hmm. of violence, which if the only people who were violent towards women were like this set group of perpetrators, maybe that would work. But that's not the truth. We live mm -hmm. in a misogynist society. Violence against women and, and girls and um, non-binary folks and genderqueer folks, that violence is embedded into patriarchy. It's built into us building a society where men are on top. They're going to maintain that power through violence, mm -hmm. right? So as much as we want to keep locking up men and saying, make misogyny a hate crime, what we really have to do is dismantle the patriarchy. And like you said, the charity sector is maintaining the patriarchy. Yeah. So all of these systems have to go. Mm -hmm. We really want to create a safe space for these survivors and actually respond exactly. to the violence they've experienced. And, and the beauty of you saying that is there's no one and one size fits all, no one answer. W.E.B. Du Bois said, if you have one fascist institution that you're trying to get rid of, now you need a multitude of democratic institutions to replace that. Mm -hmm. So it's never gonna be, oh, now we have policing and the domestic violence sector, and we're just gonna plug those in. So now instead we'll have uh, women's groups mm -hmm. and you know, mutual aid community networks. It's like, no, there's no one for one that just plugs in. We're gonna have to build a network of things. Exactly. What's, your, what's your take on that? Well, yeah, cause I, I, there was a point where I recognized that like, okay. And I think this might've been um, in my uh, like uh, abolition skeptic zone. And it's so ironic because it really just sums everything up. Like, I remember thinking, okay, great. So we're gonna crush all the existing systems, right? And then what's gonna step into its place? It's gonna be the white women with power who then build their transphobic and like misogynistic and racist sectors because that's who currently has power. So whilst we're advocating for uh, the uh, abolition of the systems that we currently have, if we don't have, um, yeah, if we don't have alternatives already being built, the only people who are going to step in are the people who currently assume power anyway. Um, and so so there was a point where that, like, I thought I'd like prove my point against abolition at that point of like, well, it's pointless because then white women will just get more power. But then there's a segue from that of, 
well no, the more we build alternatives, the more we have something to put in the place of white fascist feminist powers. Um, and yeah, that is, that's essentially all Peaks of Colour is trying to be, just like this, this nod to proof that alternatives can exist. Like, you know, it, I sometimes get in a bit of a hole with myself of like, we're not doing enough. We're not, you know, we're not eradicating anything. We're not, we're not fixing the world. We're not doing, you know, we're, we're small and that's the point. It's like meant to be um, informal and intimate. And then sometimes I get the little niggle of like capitalism in my ear that's like, you should be doing more. You should be working yourself to death, blah, blah, blah. And essentially all I want from Peaks of Colour is for us to uh, offer an alternative so that, you know, if anyone points to us, they can be like, oh yeah, they're doing it differently and they haven't crumbled to the ground, like they're still standing. There's so many moments when it feels impossible to be outside of the status quo, to be different. And it's because the systems are so impenetrable for anyone who isn't conforming to these, like on paper, reasonable approaches of, you know, yeah, becoming constituted, becoming registered, um, yeah. taking taking the money from white organizations, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I also just think that that, is, that in itself is uh, a tool of white supremacy in so many ways, but yeah. the ways it wastes our time. Like I think, I think more than anything, um, it's, it's the way these systems purposefully waste grassroots organizations time and that time could be better spent doing the damn work and actually, you know, and actually healing. So for me, yes. I like, there's so many points because I, I genuinely feel like it's just this unlearning and deconditioning journey that I'm on that I'm bringing people into and inviting people into within a space of peaks of colour because there are so many times when I'm like, I should be doing more. Um, I should be more vocal on this. I should be, you know, whatever, whatever. We should be doing more. And then the the thing that I'm like, it, I guess it's like an affirmation or something that I like have to keep repeating to myself is it's okay to do less. And when you like, when I return to that point of, um, yeah, I can only do what feels safe for me. And if, if what feels safe for me today is very little, then I'm already winning. If the battle is against this capitalist white supremacist system that tells us we always have to burn ourselves out to exhaustion because then the point is that when we burn out our movements burn out with us so this isn't accidental that these systems are in place that you know pat us on the back for doing diversity and inclusion work and yes they want brown people around so they can they can look good but they don't actually want the change they don't actually want the change that would come about if we had the power, the agency, the resources to do it. So they create systems that are so convoluted, so complex, so time consuming, that we can't actually make the strides that we want. Um, and it is, it's no accident that they leave us burnt out, disenfranchised and exhausted because that is uh, the only other alternative is that we are mobilized, healed uh, as a collective and have the energy to fight them so no, they want us burnt out and they make all these Absolutely. mechanisms to do it. So much, so much of what you said yeah. when you said um, it does so much to waste our time. I immediately went to the Toni Morrison quote. She's like, that's what racism mm -hmm. is there to do. It's there to distract you from your work. 
So instead of you creating mm -hmm. what you're here to create and facilitating what you're here to facilitate, you over here arguing and going back and forth. Exactly. Like, no, 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 no. And, and even to the point that you said around that capitalist voice in your ear that's putting that pressure on you and says you need to work harder, that Protestant, you know, um, mm -hmm. mentality that says work yourself into the ground and, and that industriousness is what defines you as worthy or valuable. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I remember having uh, a debate with one of my girlfriends in the States. She's a lawyer. Mm. And she has the t-shirt. I hate these t-shirts, but anyway. She has this t-shirt that says, I'm my ancestor's wildest dream. Mm -hmm. like, this bothered me profoundly. Mm -hmm. The reason that it bothered me was, I don't know her ancestors, so I can't speak on them. Maybe that was their dream for her. <laughs> to speak on that. I don't, I don't commune with them. Listen, I venerate my ancestors, so I can talk to mine about what they like, right? But to a certain extent, Every woman in my family before me was worked to death. Mm -hmm. The last woman that, that that they almost worked to death was my grandmother. She was in the hospital before my mom went to get her out and make her retire, right? Yeah. Every single woman in my lineage before that, going back to the continent, was worked to death. Mm -hmm. so I'm like, do they actually want me to work myself to death to make the world better? Or do they want me to have a happy, healthy, and balanced mm -hmm. To have to be free, to be yeah. empowered, to be able to actually make decisions, and yes, to change things, mm -hmm. and yes, to advocate, and yes, to speak up, but also to take care of myself, and to take care of my children, and to rest, and to be loved, and to have control over. Because the other part of this is, um, and I always go back to how capitalism was perfected on the plantation. People think it was invented there. I'm like, no, no, no. They just perfected it there. Yeah. Because think about it. If I can work you from sun up to sundown six days a week, leaving you no time to socialize, organize, grow your own food, hunt, do nothing. And then on your day off, I control the activities that you do. You have to go to a church, you have to listen to, the, you know, mm -hmm. you have to do this. That's even though you might physically be around each other, you don't have, like you said, you don't have any energy mentally, emotionally, or imagination wise yeah. to create something different. The only energy you have is like a kind of present moment resistance, fight, fight, fight. And then like you said, get burnt out and the movement dies with you. So to me, it's like, it's almost like they perfected this, this um, train of, you know, exploiting or almost crushing down yeah. the movement because I'm never going to let you live. I'm never going to let you thrive just as a human being. I'm not going to let you yeah. get stuff like fresh air and take a walk and, you know, have security in your housing and not be stressed about money all the time. But these are the things that we're dealing with as organizers that's really cutting it's us so off the leg. And like I... Um, so I went to a uh, regenerative activism uh, course that was absolutely fantastic. It was the first BIPOC only one as well. It was, uh, I'm going to give them a shout out because they were so great. I was going to say, can you shout them out? Because I want to yeah. know. The organization's called ULEX and they've been running these, um, yeah, these spaces for quite a while, but I went to the first BIPOC only one and it was mind blowing, absolutely mind blowing in so many different ways that I could talk about, it's a whole other podcast episode, to be honest, but uh, in relation to what you were saying about like ancestors and, you know, what they would have wanted from us, we were asked at one point in this retreat of uh, what kind of ancestor do you want to be? And the only thing that I could think of, because I have a really like fragmented relationship with my own ancestry, 
but the only thing I could think of is healed. And there's something in that that kind of brought me back to this question of like, yes, you were saying, what do we replace these systems with? Yeah, so, um, and the, the thing is that like, it places this huge responsibility on us to have the answers right now whilst we're still living in the damn struggle, right? Like, like I think it's a real, um, it adds additional pressure to our movement to like be able to answer that question right here, right now. Um, when actually I feel like the only, the answers can really come once we're all healed. Once we're healed and we know what we need to be healed and remain healed, then we can, you know, we can truly answer that question. So, and in this like liminal space in between that, when it feels like uh, we don't have any control or agency and we feel powerless, which as a survivor is, you know, so uh, prominent all the time. The whole point is that you have your control and agency removed from you by your perpetrators. And I think the healing journey is constantly this like battle of like trying to regain control in your life. And for me, where that intersects with this, my abolition journey is recognizing that my own healing is the only thing I really have control over and how empowering is that to you know the world can be falling apart around me I might feel like I have no control in regards to funding or I could feel like I have no control in regards to the violence against women and girls sector but if I'm if by the end of my life whenever that may be I've gotten to a point where I am healed enough to not pass on the intergenerational trauma of not only my ancestors but my own then that is the the that's the best contribution I can offer. And I mean, it brings up a whole other conversation of whether I even want kids, but but I, I also know that it can't be an option. Children can't be an option unless I am healed enough, whatever that enough feels like. And because otherwise I'm just passing it on in the same way that it was passed on to me. Um, and you know, if we're going to bring black and brown kids into the world where we know they'll be traumatized. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Yeah. We at least need to make sure that we're not passing on our own if they're going to enter a world that is still not safe enough for them at that point. Um, I know you can't remember what your question was. No, absolutely. <laughs> the way you answered it, the last bit was so succinct and so beautiful. I really want to let that resonate because when you said the type of ancestor I want to be is healed. And uh, I just want to give a shout out to everyone who is also um, in a chokehold from the generational wealth conversation. It too has me in a chokehold, okay? I can't tell if it's capitalism or me trying to look out for my descendants, all right? You know, it's this little, the water's a little murky. But the way I've been thinking about it is, with what you just said about healing, what is the generational wealth that you pass down to pass down love and healing and acceptance? through your DNA to your descendants rather than, like you said, stress, trauma, anxiety, and, you know, these, these feelings mm-hmm. of unworthiness that we get from all these traumatic experiences. So for me, it's even trying to be more expansive in the way that we think about things like generational wealth and inheritance in terms of what are we passing down in terms of a legacy? Because when I think of the legacy I want to leave for my children, I'm like, yo, if prison still exists the way they do currently, everywhere in the world by the time my kids are my age we messed up we messed up because it's enough people who know now and it might 
So it's like, what is that? Yeah, really and it, it like? might not be gotta be here to to leave one. So I can't mm-hmm. run myself into the ground exactly. to, to 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 try and realize. Yeah, this is such a perfect way to transition into the last question of the podcast, which mm. I'm always interested in this because, as I say always, I'm a '90s baby. I'm a millennial. Very proud of it. Um, I think it really shapes how I see the world. Uh, growing up in the '90s, what a time to be alive! I mean, the '90s was just a time to be alive. I mean, um, socially and politically, I think it really shapes how I see the world. So I'm curious about your vantage point in terms of when you were born, the way you were raised, you know, the kind of years that you were coming up, and what was going on, and how you mm-hmm. that impacts your mindset and the way that you, you know, approach your organizing now. Yeah, I mean, so I'm also a 90s baby. I was born in 94. And I think I'll preface it by saying that um, uh, so much of my childhood is a bit of a blur because of the various layers of trauma. Um, And that's not to say that I didn't have a loving, like I was so loved as a child, but there were moments where of trauma that have made it really hard for me to simply, you know, look back on, I don't know, a specific birthday and remember it or a school trip that my mates can remember, you know, those kind of things. Um, but it's, it's such an interesting question because I realized something recently, um, in regards to my own relationship with nature, I think someone might have asked me it and my go-to was to talk about uh, being a survivor and nature being my source of escape, which is true. Uh, And I think that kind of came about uh, in my like early 20s, late teens maybe. Um, But then actually it was my mother-in-law who was like, how did uh, a little girl from Doncaster became so become so connected with nature so like for context where I was born it's this post-industrial extremely working class majoritively white uh, northern town called Doncaster it's actually a city now bizarre bizarre let's not go down that route it's still a town to me it's it's a really large town it always had this like complicated like small big town mentality uh, and so much of my trauma is situated there. I really struggle to go back. My mum still lives there. It's only, it's only what, 20, 30 minutes drive from Sheffield where I am now, but I still struggle to go home if Doncaster is home. Um, and the the neighbourhood I was from was called Hexthorpe. Um, again, extremely post-industrial working class area, majority of the white area. Um that like the industry before it was the railways um and yeah it's it's a really insular place um in that most people who are from there stay there uh, you're weird if you're like me and even move to the neighboring town um and despite being in this really low income area what we had on our doorstep was the river don which is not a beautiful river by any means it stretches through south yorkshire um and I always remember someone telling me there were like dead bodies at the bottom of it to warn me not to swim in it. It might be true, but it's just that it was that gross, like don't go near it. Um, but along this really gross river um, is this 
walkway that led from my house, from the back of my house, all the way up. If you follow it long enough, it will take you half the day, but you can walk to Sheffield following the river. And it takes you um, along this waterfall trail uh, and a, a nature reserve. And that is the walk that me and my friends would do almost weekly. We didn't appreciate it. It would take you through our local park, which, you know, has been there since my grandparents' uh, generation. I think there's like, even before that, I think there's photos of this park in like the Victorian area with people with parasols and stuff. Um, so we had immediate access to nature on our doorstep and we never defined it as that. We never described it as that. I mean, being born in the 90s, we were like on the cusp of technology and still playing outside like we'd we'd call for each other we'd go out to play there was a tree uh, in between on on our street that um we'd always get told off for climbing by some old biddy in a bungalow um and we played in it so much that they chopped it down so there was all these different um yeah these different moments yeah. of um, access to nature and also how nature can be taken away from you. I remember going along the uh, river one day uh, on my own and there was uh, these two men who weren't from the council chopping down all these wildflowers that would like border the the, uh, river and I kicked off. It speaks a lot to the way I always use that walk because I, it, it went from us using that river as our playground when we were little to it becoming this like lifeline that me and particularly uh, another friend who's now my housemate would use at all the moment all the moments that hurt us you know our first breakup uh, if we had a fight with our parents whatever we would call for each other and go walk on the river and we'd run to each other we'd cry and we'd come home slightly less pissed off than when we started. And then I started doing that on my own. Uh, And yeah, there was this moment when people were chopping down the wildflowers that grow naturally um, and bordered the river. And I kicked off at these middle-aged white men who just laughed in my face and I carried on on my walk. Um, And only now, uh, at this point where I'm really uh, looking to nature for alternative routes to healing and justice of how, yeah how we can be nature-led as a movement how nature can how our relationship to nature should be mutually reciprocal and how our racial justice movement is so entwined with the land justice movement as well it's only at this point that i'm able to reflect on those moments those that felt really mundane as a kid a really working class kid growing up in doncaster and nature was always there without having the language and the sophistication and the awareness to like appreciate it um or yeah or just like mark it as impactful and it always was so even though like I think for the past few years when people have asked me about like nature and wild swimming and hiking and mental health and you know trauma and recovery I've always come back to this point of like oh yeah when I was uh in my second abusive relationship it was the only way I could escape by going on these big long hikes blah 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 and that that is true but that wasn't my first introduction to nature at all because I must have I must have had um 
yeah, there must have been something that positioned nature as an option. Yeah, you returning to yourself. And Mm -hmm. thank you so much for sharing that. Not only is it beautiful, and thank you for being so vulnerable with me and and with our listeners and sharing Mm -hmm. your experiences and your story. But it highlights two things that are really driving a lot of my thoughts this year. The first one is that the childhood us was so close to our true self. Mm -hmm. And the more that we do things that bring us back to that person, the more kind of grounded and able we feel and able to move forward. And so it's so fantastic to hear. Yeah, this is something I would do when I was a young person, as a teenager with me and my friend, you know, things would go wrong, have a fight with my mom, have a breakup, and you go and walk and that was needed. And then almost thinking of it as a, a default or kind of a buried subconscious thing that was there somewhere to where you, when you got in that other situation, you're like, hmm, walking and that just became the the thing that you did so i think that beautiful that's such a beautiful way of returning to yourself um well it's so interesting because and actually we are going to have uh peaks of color uh events soon that kind of situates on this topic but one thing i'm really interested in at the minute is like the concept of grief within racial justice work and one how we quite literally as a society, especially in Britain, you know, stiff upper lip, you know, even if you look, I'm a real anti-monarchist, but I think what was really interesting about like uh, the Meghan and Harry documentary and stuff was how they weren't allowed to grieve as children. Like they weren't allowed to show grief when their mum died. Um, And that's like really like symptomatic of the whole of the UK essentially. So I feel like I've never been given the tools to grieve and this is where so much trauma sits in because it's like I feel it it's embodied it's it's in me so something I'm really interested in is like uh like what are the lost possibilities of who we could be around this grief like who could I have been if it wasn't for the trauma essentially and that in itself is a point of grief of like grieving the person who you could have been the 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 life you could have lived if it wasn't plagued by trauma. And I mean, my entire career has been like, to point to one thing and one thing alone, my career has been based around this trauma. I probably wouldn't have gone down the domestic abuse route at aged 18 if I hadn't have already experienced gendered violence by that point. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's hypothetical isn't it I have no idea who I could have been but I I think if I was to look at childhood me who only wanted to ever be in nature who loved animals like to death (laughs) to death it probably would have like led me down some route of conservation and Mm -hmm. and something who knows but the fact is I was a black working class uh, kid from Doncaster who ex- had experienced racism by the time I was three, who had experienced domestic abuse by the time I was 14, who had witnessed domestic abuse by the time I was five, and who lost uh, someone to suicide by the time I was 12. Wow. So at those points, like those points pushed me into sociology, which is how I started all of this, because I needed to find meaning somehow, uh, and I found it through theory and practice. And that's fine that that is what it is but there's something of like who could I be if I wasn't traumatized to fuck (laughs) I, I I love that question and that query but also what you said about you need to give yourself room to to grieve Mm -hmm. the first time that I really remember 
everybody thinks grief is about death. What I actually learned is when you have a really healthy understanding of death, you're not grieving the death. You're grieving the person's life. You're grieving mm. the time you spent with them. You're not grieving them dying. That's not mm -hmm. what's causing you to grieve. You're grieving this person's not going to be here with me anymore. So yeah. with that, you actually grieve a, a state of being. It's not like a one-time thing that you're grieving. And that's why grief mm -hmm. like never ends. It's ongoing because it's the state of being. Okay, cool. But then to me, it's like, like you're saying, when we never have room or space to actually grieve things, to grieve things. And I just want to lift up Tyree Nichols and his family right now in the States. And I also want to lift up Chris Kaba and his family here in the UK because the reality of grief is when you're fighting for your loved one's innocence, when you're fighting for their name, when you're fighting for justice for that person, are you really able to grieve as a community? Are we really able to grieve when we're, you know, like you said, and, and, and how does looking to nature in terms of trying to create that restorative space for ourselves to just be a human being and feel the things that we feel and you know what i mean give ourselves that space um i think one thing that came up really recently for me like really recently i was having a conversation with someone um and you know peaks of color is about this right to rest essentially this like like we've done enough and we can't do any more unless we're resting um and then someone i was talking to someone and they were like uh, it's really interesting because I also like am really trying to center rest in my life and like prioritize it and you know maintain a, a routine where rest is present and they were saying that but what comes up every time I rest is the grief so actually um rest gives us this space uh, where everything can come up all the stuff that we've been uh, suppressing the more we busy ourselves and the more we like distract ourselves with the systems that are in place to distract us uh, we are quite literally removing opportunities to heal so and it, it really sparked something for me in terms of the work Peaks of Colour is doing because I was like if I'm building these spaces for people to rest there has to be and if anyone is you know if anyone is um there has to be these spaces for the grief and the healing to come out to to be pushed to the surface to be to be processed to be held um because i think you know uh we're often capitalism tells us that rest is lazy that rest is inactive and uh that all your that rest is wasteful um but actually there's so much of like active rest where where you might be having a nap um, and you know Trisha Hurst she talks about this all the time you're having a nap but like there's what are you dreaming about that that can be used for for or that can be like, point you in a direction mm -hmm. um you might be having a nap or you might be laying down but what comes up might be the grief of a trauma that you've suppressed for however many years and you didn't know needed to be addressed that you can then take to therapy and do that work and move on from it it's not eating you up like this cancerous like thing inside of you um so yeah, it's all connected, isn't it? It is. And with that, I feel like such a beautiful way to wrap the episode with uh, just another incredible quote from Evie. <laughs> capitalism, you know, capitalism is putting us in this position. It's putting us in between this rock, rock and a hard place. But actually rest 
and and I love the way you said this because I follow you know uh, social media pages like the Nat Ministry and mm-hmm. things. But I feel like what you just said closed the gap for a lot of people, which is rest within itself is revolutionary because it's giving you the space to feel. It's giving you the space to grieve. It's giving you the space to heal, to address, to go back and drudge up, like you said, those traumas or to deal with things in therapy, to, to, you know, to nurse your inner child, to do shadow work, to just love on yourself. And those types of things is all necessary for us to be the healed version of ourselves that's going to be able to implement the change that we want. So if, if there's anybody who, like me, really struggles with, oh, I haven't done this, I haven't done that, I need to do this, I need to do that, also think about that in terms of the emotional. And that, to me, is what feminism and Black feminism really offers us. It offers us the opportunity to go back to our human self, our human body, and say, yo, I have feelings. I feel things. I need to rest. I need to eat. I need love. Mm-hmm. Support. You know, I need to be heard and validated. These are things I need. And I can't just brush those things off because the system tells me I just need to get to the bag and like, you know, be, be efficient and these type of things. So um, thank you so much. There are so many quotables. Um, from this episode. Appreciate you and appreciate your time. And uh, please tell the audience where they can learn more about you, support your work and peaks of color. Oh God, thank you for having me. First of all, um, this in and of itself has felt like yeah like an unfailing of so many thoughts that have been whizzing around my brain recently that I'm like who can I tell this to like who can I process this with and it's been you and I'm so I'm so grateful that it's that it's you that that is uh sharing this with me uh in terms of uh all my apps and all that jazz so you can find me on Muir on Instagram and uh Twitter and then for all things Peaks of Colour it's at Peaks of Colour on Instagram and Twitter and we also have a closed Facebook group that's for people of colour only um, where we share all the details of our monthly walks and our seasonal workshops. Woo! Thanks so much for joining another episode of the Purple Podcast and stay welcome.